Good morning. I want to preface um, what I'm going to talk about this morning with a little caveat disclaimer. My style this morning is going to change up a tad because stylistically I preach from bullet points. And this morning, because so many quotes from my hero, so much of what I'm going to tell you this morning is directly from his mouth that uh, I have manuscripted everything I'm going to say. In other words, it's, it's written down. And so if it sounds like I'm reading, it's because I am. <laughs> but I wrote it. So, um, uh, um, so if it's a little different, I'm sorry. Um, but I want you to hear from the mouth of my hero um, the supremacy of God, the absolute belief and enjoyment in a sovereign, providential, and good God that's worth worship. Um, I want to start a new tradition at Three Rivers every Sunday following All Saints Day. Does anybody know what day All Saints Day is? November 1st, that's right. All Saints Day, we, we're going to look at the life of a saint, someone who's gone before us, someone who lived the life. And this Sunday, we're looking at Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson uh, is a man uh, that in so many ways has similarities to me, and that's one of the reasons he's my hero. I've, I've read his life before, and I actually wanted to name John Mark Judson, um, and Jennifer would not give in to that because she knew a Judson in high school was complete redneck, and so that just tainted it for her, and so, um, so no dice for me. However, this man's legacy is huge. Um, there are a couple passages I want to read for you about Adoniram Judson's life that epitomize his living. Um, and make a very brief comment about those passages, and then we're going to look at this man's life and how he lived these passages out. You know, the central theme of Three Rivers Community Church is the completion of the Great Commission. We, we have as a centerpiece of who we are missions, and, and you saw that this morning. You hear that every week. You know we work in a very difficult place on the globe and in southern Afghanistan, and, and uh, there are uh, six trips that are on the calendar for this next year, and Brad's going to be sharing more of that with you as the days pass by and as we refine all of that. And so we believe in that call. But as we believe in that call, we must also look at the lives of those historically who've gone before us for strategy, but also as a living, breathing example of a person who was obedient to the Word. Here are a couple passages that epitomize his life. John chapter 12, verse 20 to 26, if you have your Bible, turn there. Because here is a passage that shows the life of Adoniram Judson and the result very clearly. This is a passage that was very dear to him. And I believe one that was truly so. John 12, 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Judson loved this passage because it spoke of a truth in the kingdom. And that truth is that in order for fruit to be born in a life, there must be a death that occurs. We cannot pursue ourselves, our lives, our comfort, and produce fruit in the kingdom of God. Those are the antithesis of one another. If we are going to be productive citizens of the kingdom, our number one pursuit must be to be followers of Christ and to die to us and live to Him. There must be a death that occurs in our lives and what we pursue. And Jesus stated this and Judson held on to this, that whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You can't be a member of the kingdom and love your life more than Jesus. And that's a problem for us in North America because we're taught in the American dream that our life is the most important pursuit. We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And God says, if you come after me, you can't be American first. Judson loved Colossians 1, 24-26. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. I preached on this passage up at Ridgecrest this summer and had no clue um, to what extent the Lord would begin to train me in this stuff and wish I hadn't preached it now. However, it is good. Paul said he rejoiced in his sufferings, which is strange. Um, anybody here rejoice in suffering? If you raise your hand, you're lying because I know that's not true. That's not what we're geared to do. But Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the church because he says in his flesh... He was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. In other words, what Paul said is, in whatever way the church fails to suffer for Christ, I make it up on your behalf. In other words, what Paul was saying to the Colossians was that to whatever extent you're not suffering so that Jesus and the cross are demonstrated in your life... I make it up on your behalf. In other words, what Paul was saying was, I have become a demonstration of the sufferings of Christ to those around me so that they might see in my sufferings the sufferings of Jesus and thus have a tangible, visible testimony to the cross. Which is big. And the reason that's big is because those who are called... To the life of the Great Commission must realize that we must suffer. It's not negotiable. We are to be a visible demonstration of the sufferings of Christ. And that was out of Judson's life. 
Adoniram's life epitomizes these two passages. The life of the missionary is to be a presentation of the sufferings of Christ to those who have not witnessed them in the word and in the preached word and who is not there to see. I also believe this goes for all those devoted to ministry and, and maybe to some extent lay people who give up their lives to truly be followers of Jesus in everything they say and do. Adoniram Judson believed in the sovereignty of God. He believed in the good, pleasant, and even the dark providences of God. Adoniram Judson hated his life in this world. And he was truly a seed that fell into the ground and died. That fruit might be born to the kingdom of God. Adoniram Judson in his sufferings filled up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in unreached Burma. And his life bore fruit in the kingdom of God. Judson was a Calvinist. Yes. He was a Baptist Calvinist. But Judson didn't wear his Calvinism as his badge of honor. And I think for us who love Reformed theology, we need to take our Calvinism off our sleeves and present Jesus first. We're so guilty of taking our Reformed theology and shoving it in people's faces before we shove Jesus out there. And that's not Judson. Judson didn't wear his Reformed theology on his sleeve. He wore Jesus. You can see, however, his Reformed convictions. There's a book by Thomas Nettles. It's called uh, By His Grace and For His Glory. He was the son of a Congregationalist pastor, which is where he gained much of his Reformed theology from. Uh, Judson's father studied under Jonathan Edwards' student, student named Joseph Bellamy. And so therefore, Adoniram inherited a deep, founded and rooted belief in the sovereignty of God. And the great importance for this, and my purpose here this morning to focus on that in his life, is to stress his deep confidence in God's overwhelming, overpowering providence through every calamity and misery in his life. And it was that confidence in the sovereignty, the good sovereignty of God, that sustained him to the very end. He said, and I quote, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Adoniram Judson met William Carey in India after they had left to go east. Carey actually warned Judson about going into Burma. He warned him not to go there. Carey and others there at the Serampore Mission said it was a hostile place and that they should stay and help with their work in India. But Adoniram was confident that God had called him to Burma. He was absolutely certain that was the focus. He was absolutely sure the call on their lives was to go to Burma. And he was willing to submit to what God wanted to accomplish through them there in Burma. So he disobeyed the great William Carey. Oh, that took guts. Because he was a hero. He knew who Carey was. Carey was the, the father of the modern mission movement. He was a hero already. And he actually was baptized by William Carey because he went as a Reformed Congregationalist to India and met Carey and on the way discovered believers' baptism. Amen. And he got his good confidence in the sovereignty of God and got his theology straight about baptism. And William Carey baptized him. So he became a Baptist, our first Baptist missionary. 
from the United States to the unreached peoples of the globe. Man, that's a good history. That's one of the things that makes me proud to be a Baptist. That and I am Judson. Amen. This was the unshakable confidence that all three of his wives shared as well. Uh, Anne, Sarah, and Emily. And Emily was Fanny Forrester. Anybody read any Fanny Forrester? She was a great novelist. Uh, wrote what Adoniram considered to be light and lacking weight work. However, she's a great author in American history. Um, Anne, for example, who married Adoniram Judson on February 5th, 1812, and left with him on the boat on February 19th. You can do the math there. That's just 14 days after the wedding. They got on a boat and headed to Burma. She was 23. She bore him three children, and all of them died. The first baby was nameless, was born dead, just as they sailed from India to Burma. The second child, Roger William Judson, lived 17 months and then died. The third, Maria Elizabeth Butterworth Judson, lived to be two and outlived her mother by six months. Then she died. Um, when her second child died, Anne wrote, and, and listen, listen to this. And, and moms, I pray that you may be able to say this. Our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt he was our earthly all. Our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be vain that He has done it. May we so improve it that He will stay His hand and say, It is enough. In other words, what sustained Adoniram and his wives through this was a rock-solid confidence that God is sovereign and good. And that all things come from His hand for the good. The incredibly painful good even of His children. Uh, the roots of this sustaining confidence in God's goodness and His providence was that foundation. One of those early influences that began to put this into His life was His Father. That's what He believed and that's what He lived. A second source of this confidence was the Bible. Judson was a lover of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, the legacy of his life in Burma and his 38 years in Burma. And by the way, I want to say to you, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't give it a two-year commitment. This man took his coffin with him. And 38 years later, his legacy was a complete translation of the Bible into Burmese and a dictionary uh, that all later missionaries in that era and that place would use. 38 years. There was a Buddhist teacher one time that said he could not believe that Christ suffered the death of the cross because no king allows his son such indignity. And listen to Judson's response. Therefore, you are not a disciple of Christ. A true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it is in the book. His pride has yielded to the divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the Word of God. Boy, that's a bold statement. I don't think any of us have ever said that to a Muslim or a Hindu, a Buddhist. That's a powerful statement. A third source of this man's confidence in the goodness and absolute detailed, specific providence of God was the way God saved him. It's, it's a really, really incredible story. And I... 
say if you're taking my class shorter in the spring, you can go ahead and get this book and save yourself about 20 bucks from CBD, ChristianBook.com. It's called The Life of Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. It's long, but it's engrossing reading. You can read this thing very quickly. Uh, incredible reading. And, and you can go through and see how God saved him because the story of his conversion is amazing. And so I encourage you to get this and read it. And everything I'm telling you this morning straight out of this. That's got it from Courtney Anderson. The way God saved him is an amazing story because he was brilliant at the age of three. Three. Okay? His mom taught him to read in a week. And uh, to surprise his father, when he came home from a trip, she had Adoniram sit down at the age of three and read a passage of Scripture to his dad. <laughs> wow, that's convicting. When he was 16, okay, 16, he entered Brown University as a sophomore. He got to skip the freshman year because he was so up to date and ahead of his time. And then three years later, he graduated at the top of his class in 1807. What his parents didn't know at that time was that Adoniram Judson was being lured away from the faith by a student, a fellow student who was one of his closest friends named Jacob Eames. And Jacob Eames was a deist. By the time Adoniram was finished, he had no Christian faith. And he kept this hidden from his parents until his 20th birthday on August 9th, 1808, when he broke their hearts with the announcement that he had no faith and that he intended to go to New York and pursue a life of acting in the theater. And he did that six days later on a horse his dad gave him as part of his inheritance. It didn't prove to be a, a good experience. He hooked up with some roving actors. And he said later, and I quote, he lived a reckless vagabond life, finding lodgings where he could and bilking the landlord where he found opportunity. In other words, he roved, he scavenged, and when he couldn't pay, he stole. Uh, the disgust with the life he found there was the beginning of some incredible providences of God in his life. He went to visit his uncle Ephraim in Sheffield, but he found there what he said a pious young man who stunned him by being firm in his Christian convictions without being what he called austere and dictatorial. In other words, he was a man who was firm in what he believed, yet he had an air of humility and love about him. And I think it's kind of strange that he would find that young man there instead of his uncle, don't you? You think God might have had something to do with that? The next night, he stayed in a village inn where he had never been before. And this is the cool part of the story. The innkeeper apologized that his sleep might be interrupted because there was a man critically ill in the next room. Through the night, he heard comings and he heard goings of people all night long, groans and gasps for air, and it bothered him to think that the man next to him might not be ready to die. He wondered about himself and uh, even the thoughts of his own dying. And he felt foolish because good deists weren't supposed to have these struggles. When he was leaving in the morning just to sort of make himself feel better, he asked the man, the innkeeper, if the man next door to him was better. The innkeeper said he's dead. And he was sort of struck by the situation and just sort of keep conversation going. Adoniram asked if he knew who it was and the innkeeper replied, Oh yeah, it's a young man from a college in Providence. His name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Interesting, the one who lured him from the faith died next door. Slipped into eternity. Judson was absolutely horrified. 
he actually, Courtney Anderson writes, he got on his horse and he rode for hours and doesn't even record in his journals any of the moments after he found that out until he determined to turn around and go back home. But he just found himself riding on his horse. Didn't know how he got there. He was so stunned. He just got on his horse and rode and found himself along this road and didn't even realize how he had gotten there. He was stunned. He stayed in the inn, however, sometime kind of looking over and pondering the death of his deist friend. And if his friend Jacob Eames were right then this was a meaningless event. But he couldn't believe it. And here's what Judson said, that hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. His conversion wasn't immediate. Um, It took some time. But God was on his trail and intended to save him. As a matter of fact, he enrolled in a seminary, a new seminary, Andover Seminary, as an unbeliever. And they let him do it as a special student because they knew his father so that he could begin to seek out through the scriptures who God was. And on October of 1808, or excuse me, he enrolled in October of 1808. And in December, the 2nd of December, he finally came to faith and he made a solemn dedication of himself to God. Um, and at that particular time, and here's God in His great providence, there had been a wonderful, incredible meeting just two years earlier at Williams College called the Haystack Prayer Meeting. And out of that prayer meeting, two students left that college and came to Andover Seminary, and they became friends of Adam Iron Judson, and they all began to talk about the goal of reaching the East and the heathen with the gospel of Jesus Christ. On June 28, 1819, Judson and some others presented themselves to the Congregationalist Body for Missionary Service in the East. And that very same day, this is just so cool, he met his wife, fell in love automatically. Ann Hasseltine was her name. And uh, after getting to know her in a short period of time, I'm talking a very short period of time, uh, he declared his intention to become what he said was a suitor. And here's what he wrote to her father to ask for her hand in marriage. Now, if you're married and you ask your father-in-law for your wife's hand, let me see if you ask like this. This is fun. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing, Immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Wow. Can you give your daughter up to die with me? Wow. And her father, believe it or not, said she can make up her own mind. I'd probably said no. Uh, absolutely not. Get out of my house, you moron. Um, Anne wrote to her friend Lydia. This is amazing. She said, I, "I feel willing, and expect, if nothing, in if nothing in providence prevents, 
to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God and His providence shall see fit to place me. By the way, guys, when you ask that girl to marry you, if she can't say that, say no. Just say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I've got to find me somebody else. That, that's a powerful, powerful statement. They were married a year and a half later on February 5th, 1812, and they sailed for India 12 days later with a couple other couples and two single men. And they divided on two ships in case one ship sank, the others might make it. After a time in India where, as I said, he got baptized and learned some things from William Carey, they decided to risk Rangoon in Burma, and they arrived there on July 13, 1813. And there they began a lifelong battle with 108 degree heat, with cholera, malaria, dysentery, and tons of other difficulties that would make two of Judson's wives and seven of his 13 children and colleagues give in to death. Two of his wives and seven of his 13 children would die. We think it's hard. We think it's hard to risk comfort. The first news from home arrived two years later on September 5th, 1815. Uh, they had died to the nearness of their family and the closeness of their familial relationships to go. And Adoniram would never see his mother or father or brother again. He would not return for 33 years. Um, difficult times is what defined his life. Um, if somebody was sick enough, the remedy to save life was a sea voyage. So... Uh, a marriage or the entire work could be put on hold for three to six months if they were sick enough to have to go on a voyage. could be longer. Eight years into their mission, Anne was so sick that the only hope was a trip home. And she sailed on August 21st, 1821. And she returned on December 5th, 1823. Two years and four months later. And when she arrived, he had not heard from her for ten months. Uh, one of the joys of life was seeing some of God's goodness in the dark providences of life. Uh, here's an example. When Anne was recovering in the States, she wrote a book, an account of the American Baptist mission to the Burman Empire. And this book had an incredible influence on stirring recruits and finances to make the goal possible. And this would not have ever happened had she not been gone for two years because of a sickness. And if you ever wonder if God is sovereign and God's providences are good even in the dark providences of life, Here's an example. Had she not been sick enough to have to take a voyage to go home, she would have not written the book that would have stirred more recruits and mobilized the missions movement to the east and brought finances to make it happen. God, 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 isn't, God isn't a person who just kind of jumps up and says, Ooh, good opportunity. I think I might jump in on that. He's directing history, people. If you don't think God is providential, if you don't think He's sovereign... You haven't read your Bibles and you haven't studied missions history because these are the kind of things that motivate us to go. Through all the struggles with sickness and all the interruptions of his work, he labored to learn the language and translate the Bible and do evangelism on the streets. And six years, six years after they arrived, they baptized their first convert. His name was Maung Nau. 
Mahung Nau, six years. And we get frustrated if we don't see any fruit. When we first talked, they didn't get saved. <laughs> six years. Six years. The sowing was difficult and the reaping was hard, but in 1831 there was a new movement in the land. Here's a, a long quote from Judson from his journal. The spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. We have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask. I presume there have been 6,000 applications at the house. Some come two or three months journey from the borders of Siam and China. Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others from the frontiers of Cathay, a hundred miles north of Ava. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, pray give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the country, where the name of Jesus Christ is a little known. Are you Jesus Christ, man? They ask. Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. Mm. That's encouraging, isn't it? That God can birth a movement and cause people to begin to inquire. But there had been an enormous price to pay between the first convert in 1819 and the outpouring of God's power in 1831. In 1823, Adoniram and Ann moved from Rangoon to Ava, the capital. It was about 300 miles inland up the Irrawaddy River. It was risky to be near the emperor. Uh, in May of the next year, the British fleet arrived in Rangoon and started a war and bombarding the harbor, and all Westerners were automatically viewed as spies. So Adoniram was dragged from his home on June 8, 1824, and put in prison. His feet were put in stocks at night, and a long bamboo pole was lowered and pressed between the stocks that bound his legs, and they hoisted them up into the air, only letting his shoulder and head rest on the ground. Anne was pregnant, but she would walk the two miles daily to the place that they had them in prison so that she could take care of him as best she could. And she tried to plead with them that Judson wasn't a spy and they should have mercy. She got some relief for him after some begging so that he would at least be allowed to come out into the courtyard every now and then. But still, the prisoners would get rats in their hair amid all the rotting food. And so they had to shave them all bald. Almost a year later, they were moved to a more distant village prison. So being thin, absolutely emaciated, dressed in rags and crippled from the torture, they moved them and marched them in their stocks. The mosquitoes were so brutal from all the rice patties that they would at night when their feet were hoisted up do nothing but feast on their bloody, soaked, nasty feet. The daughter, Maria, was born... While he was in prison and Anne was almost as sick as Adoniram was, but she still pursued him. She'd still go see him and take the baby. Um, her milk dried up and the jailer showed some mercy and allowed Adoniram and, Maria, or, and Anne to take the baby into the village to find some lady that could nurse the child for them. And on November 4, 1825, he was suddenly released because the government wanted him to be a translator to put peace documents in place. So the long ordeal of 17 months in prison, being on the brink of death, and his wife sacrificing herself and her baby to care for him came to an end. Anne's health was degraded and broken, and 11 months later she died on October 24, 1826. And six months later their daughter died, April 24, 1827. 
while he was suffering in prison, out an iron had a fellow prisoner. Here's what he said. It is possible my life will be spared. If so, with what and or shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be open for others who would do the work better. But now that his wife and daughter were gone, there's a darkness began to settle on his life and on his soul. And in July, three months after the death of Maria, he got word that his father had died eight months earlier. And so all the psychological effects of these losses became devastating. There was self-doubt that overtook his life and his mind. And he wondered if he had become a missionary for ambition and fame and not humility and self-denying love. He began to read the Catholic mystics, Madame Guyon, Fenelon, and Thomas Kempis, who led him to a solitary beating down of his life with various forms of self-denial. He dropped his Old Testament translation work, which was the love of his life, and he retreated more and more from people and from what he said, anything that might conceivably support pride or promote his pleasure. He refused to eat outside the mission. He destroyed all letters of commendation. He formally renounced the honorary doctorate from Brown that they had given him in 1823. Uh, he gave all his private wealth, about $6,000, to the Baptist board. He asked that his salary be reduced by one quarter and promised to give more to missions himself. In October 1828, he built a hut in the jungle away from the main missions place and moved in it on October 28, 1828, the second anniversary of Anne's death, to live in total isolation, completely isolated himself. He wrote in a letter home to Anne's relatives, My tears flowed down at the same time over the forsaken grave of my dear love and over the loathsome sepulcher of my own heart. He had a grave dug beside the hut, and he sat beside it, contemplating the stages of the body's dissolution. The man was in a deep despair to do that. He ordered all his letters in New England destroyed on condition of returning a legal document his sister needed. He retreated for 40 days alone further into the tiger-infested jungle and wrote in one letter that he felt utter spiritual desolation. Here's what he said. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him. But I find him not. Maybe there are many of you today that that is your struggle. And our life has not been that difficult. But maybe there's a despair on your life. You say, I believe in God, but I find him not. And I say to you this morning, rest. He's not far. His brother, El Nathan, died May 8, 1829 at the age of 35. And ironically, this is interesting, this proved to be the turning point of his recovery because he had reason to believe that his brother had left unbelief and become a Christian. And so that encouraged his heart, and he began to climb out of the dark spiritual depression. And It was 1831, the next year, when he experienced a great outpouring of spiritual interest across the land. And I wonder, I wonder, I just wonder if that was coincidence. All those years of difficulty, all those years of struggle and hardship, and the very next year, when he began to climb out, God poured his spirit out on the land. And I want to say to us this morning, maybe we will not see a great movement until we've become the representatives of Christ in our suffering. Could it be we're too comfortable? Could it be our lives are just not a picture of the gospel? I don't know. If we had time to talk about this morning, we could talk. I mean, you can see how thick this is. You can see there are tons of his sufferings and all the difficulties that he went through. He married next Sarah Boardman. She was a widow of another missionary, and they married on April 10, 1834, eight years after Anne had died. They had eight children. Five survived childhood. 
And she was really gifted and probably better than anybody other than him knew the language. But 11 years later, she was so sick that they set sail for America with their three oldest children and they left the three youngest behind. Mm. One of them died before they returned. He hadn't been to America for 33 years and was only returning for the sake of his wife. And as they rounded the tip of Africa on September of 1845, Sarah died and the ship dropped anchor at St. Helena Island just long enough to dig a grave, bury her, and leave. This time he didn't descend into the depths of despair that he did before because he had his children with him and that was a nice getting away from the difficulties. Um, He was learning how to die. He was learning how to hate his life in this world. Uh, He had a passion and his passion was to return to Burma and give his life there. So his stay in the States was long enough to get his children settled and find a ship back. So he left his children back in America with his family that was left. All that was left of the life he knew in New England was his sister. And this is interesting. She kept his room exactly as it had been for 33 years. Didn't touch it. To everybody's amazement, Adoniram fell in love a third time, this time with... uh, Emily Chubbuck, who her pen name was Fanny Forrester, and he married her on June 2nd, 1846. She was 29, he was 57. So if you think a discrepancy in age is a problem, they didn't think so. She was a famous writer, and uh, she left her famous writing to career to go with Judson to Burma, and they arrived back there in November of 1846, and God gave them what they called for the happiest years that either of them had ever known. Uh, On her first anniversary, June 2nd, 1847, here's what she said. It has been by far the happiest year of my life. And what is in my eyes still more important, my husband says it has been among the happiest of his. I never met with any man who could talk so well day after day on every subject, religious, literary, scientific, political, and nice baby talk. They had one child. But then the same old thing that had gotten him before attacked him one more time. The only hope was to send Adoniram on a sea voyage. Remember, that's what they thought would cure things. On April 3rd, 1850, they carried him onto the ship Aristide Marie, bound for the Isle of France, not the country, but an isle in the ocean, with one friend, Thomas Rainey, there to take care of him. Uh, Absolutely miserable, um, with cramping and pain. He would raise him up long enough to vomit And one of his last sentences How few there are who have died so hard. (laughs) Fifteen minutes after four on Friday, April the twelfth, eighteen fifty, he died. Away from all his family and the church that has been birthed. And that that evening they Continued on like nothing had happened. The crew assembled quietly. The starboard port was opened. There were no prayers. The captain gave the order. The coffin slid through the port into the night. The location of the dropping of his coffin was 13 degrees north, longitude 93 degrees east, almost the eastward shadow of the Ottoman Islands and only a few miles west of the mountains of Burma. And the Aristide Marie continued on to the Isle of France. Ten days later, Emily gave birth to their second child who died at birth. She learned four months later that he was dead. 
she returned to New England that next January, and then she died of tuberculosis three years later at the age of 37. The Bible was completed. The dictionary was done. And hundreds of converts were leading the church in Burma. And today, there are some 3,700 congregations of Baptists in what is now called Myanmar, which is Burma, who trace their origin back to this man's love. God was finished. Finished the scriptures, finished the dictionary, and it was time for him to go. And we look at this man's life, and we say, wow, how difficult. Man, that, that's really inspiring. And, and I hope that is inspiring to you. I hope you see from John twelve twenty through 26 and Colossians 1, 24 to 26 that we have a call on our lives. And it's not intended to be one of comfort and peace. It's intended to be one that depicts the cross. This man did it. Not because he was strong, but because he had a passion for Jesus Christ that carried him beyond his own desire for himself. Adoniram Judson. Are there any Judsons in this room? Are there any people who are willing to be a grain, a kernel that would fall to the ground and die? And I'm preaching to the choir, okay? I'm, I'm turning around and preaching to me. Are we willing to give up? Are we willing to be a picture of the sufferings of Christ? That's the call. The call of Christianity isn't to be downhill from conversion. The call of Christianity is to take up the cross and follow. And man, he took it seriously. I look at that and I read his life. And I, this is the second time I've read this book. And I, every time I read it, I'm convicted because I'm just soft, man. <laughs> I'm just soft. We as Americans are soft. We as American Christians are soft. And the call of the Great Commission is every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we don't rest until we're finished. I want to add this caveat under the back of what I've said this morning. We have a strategy. And we believe we're called to the Pashtun of southern Afghanistan. And this question always comes up in the new members class. came up this morning. And, and so I'm just, I'm just going to say it to you. God may be calling you to some place other than southern Afghanistan. And I say amen. How do we do that? I don't know yet. We'll, God will give us the answer to that soon. But what I want to say to you is, when you're inspired by the Scriptures to be a person in the likeness of Adoniram Judson, I just want to say to you, whatever God calls you to, whether it's East Africa, West Africa, North Vietnam, China, wherever it happens to be, just go. And we'll figure out how to send you. I can't tell you now how that will happen. But we have to not lose focus on where we're called, but we also have to foster the call of God in your life. And I don't know how to do that. I must be real honest. Brad and I are like, we've thrown stuff back and forth to each other, and we just don't know. But what I do know is God has called us to be like this. Do you understand that? He has not called you to stay. We're all called to go. Some of us, some of you maybe for life. Some of us short term and we're called to send. But we're all called to go. And if you sit there and your heart's fluttering because you're afraid, good. 
great. That means God. That means God's talking. Because He doesn't call you to something you can pull off. Do you understand that? He does not call you to something you can do. The point isn't to glorify you. The point is to exalt the greatness of Jesus Christ in accomplishing what He said He would do, even through the dark providences of life. And that was what Adoniram Judson's life points to. Not that he was a great man. Because you read this book, you'll find he had lots of issues. He was far from perfect, and I like it because I get convicted in his greatness, but I also find comfort in the fact that he was flesh. And he struggled. He wanted to be great. He wanted to be famous, and God wanted him to die. So if it scares you, it ought to. But the flip side of that scary coin is God doesn't want you to do something you can pull off on your own so you can be famous. He calls you to Himself to accomplish great things through you so that He gets a glory and you get to be a grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies and bears much fruit. That's a life worth living. And that's the kind of life that will make us happy. See, we pursue happiness in all kinds of realms, but the only life that will make us happy is a life of falling into the ground and dying. That's what will make us happy. Not the American dream. Not shopping for a product. Not going and finding a church that just meets my need. But getting involved in the Great Commission and going. That's a life worth celebrating. And that's a God worth worshiping. Y'all think He's worth that? Oh, I think so. Father, thank You for today. As Chris and the guys come this morning, Father, to lead us to respond to your word that tells us unless we become like a seed that falls to the ground and dies, unless we hate our life in this world, we can't gain it. But those who lose their lives for your sake find it. Father, as we reflect on that in the life of Adoniram Judson that epitomizes that passage, one of his favorite passages. As we look at that, Father, let us not walk out of here today thinking that I'm just stay where I am, remain as is. Father, may you move every individual heart in this place to become a seed to fall to the ground and die. And Father, I know that there's lots of trash that you want to sort through in our lives to get to that place. You want to sort through it in mine. You are sorting through it in mine. And every heart in this place, there's hard places in our heart. There's struggles in our heart. There's veiled aspects of our lives that we don't want your truth to penetrate. And Father, I'm going to ask you this morning to dive in past the veil that we have erected over our hearts and our eyes. And in your good providence, draw us out, tear the veil down, and bring us into the light of your gospel. And send us on a mission for your glory, the building of your church, locally and globally, by being radical followers of Jesus. Father, there are people here today who are in dark providences right now. Their lives are dark. It appears heaven has been eclipsed. There's no voice, no sound, no movement. Tempted to fall away. And Father, I ask that You would remove the shadow that covers heaven 
and let them glimpse your glory and be motivated to persevere. May you uphold them in their faith. Today, there are some who are passionate in pursuing you. And Father, their pursuit needs to be directed to the nations. And I pray that you would show them where you would have them to be. There are some you want to be in southern Afghanistan. Short term and long term, would you show them where you want to be? Where you want them to be. But Father, let us not lose sight of the call to be a reflection of the sufferings of Christ so that those who have not seen can see and have not heard can hear. And help us in the dark times to remember what you have said in the light (laughs) and not lose heart. Father, energize our praise now. Heads out, bowed, eyes closed. Maybe you need prayer.